what are we to think of a society, its leaders and institutions, who seem to oppose Christianity at every turn? When we contemplate being under the authority of rulers who seem to put roadblocks in the way of God-fearing people, trying to testify to the things of God in Christ, where do we turn? What do we do? After all, who's in control here? Why would the Lord let this happen? As we come to Acts chapter 9 this morning in our Bibles, that's exactly the situation the church faced. Stephen has just finished his ministry. He has been stoned to death. And as a result of the persecution that culminated with Stephen's death, the Word of God has begun to go out from Jerusalem, pushed out by the persecution, and it has penetrated Samaria, and it has come to the Ethiopian eunuch through the witness of Philip. And while the danger from outside the church has been clear, Luke has let us for, has not let us forget that inside the church there are dangers as well. In the story of Simon the magician in Acts 8, we see there are those who profess to be believers, but in reality they have a false faith. They are wolves in sheep's clothing, and they would corrupt the gospel with the ever-present danger of greed, money, and their own filthy works of righteousness. So far in Acts, in chapters 6, 7, and 8, we see the gospel of Christ is not only driven out of Jerusalem and into the surrounding regions, but in doing so, Luke has introduced us to the first martyr of the church in Stephen, and the first evangelist in Philip. And now in Acts chapter 9, we read of the surprising, yes, even shocking conversion of one of the great enemies if not the greatest enemy of the early church, Saul. Look at chapter 9 of Acts, verse 1, and follow along with me as I read. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. And suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. With the single exception of the Lord's ministry, The most important event in the history of Christianity may well be Saul's conversion. Maybe you've picked up that as you've read through your New Testament. More space is devoted to his conversion than any other event except for the events leading up to and including the crucifixion, burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. At at the time it happened it wasn't so clear that this was an extremely important event in the life of the church. 
Only now, in the light of the revealed Scripture and the worldwide spread of the Gospel to the ends of the earth, do we understand how crucial this work of God was. How the Lord would use Paul. Thirteen of the twenty-seven books of the New Testament are written by Paul. His teaching on the meaning of Christ's death and resurrection, on justification by faith alone, and our union with Christ are the deepest and most significant in all of the Bible. But at the time of Acts 9, all this was unknown. What was known is that, humanly speaking, something had to be done about Saul if the Christian work was to continue. As the church begins to spread, Saul is the one figure who stood in the way. As a young man, he had advanced in Judaism beyond any of his contemporaries. He described himself as the Pharisee of the Pharisees and an enemy of the Christians. Remember just one chapter before in Acts 8, verse 1. Right after Stephen is stoned to death, Luke says, and Paul and Saul approved of his execution. And just two verses later in verse 3, we are told, Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Later on, when Paul himself describes his conversion in Acts chapter 22, in the 19th verse, he says, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And then in the third description of his conversion in the book of Acts, in chapter 26, before Agrippa, the apostle said, starting in verse 9, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus Christ. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. And later on in Galatians chapter 1 verse 13, when Paul is talking about why his life so dramatically changed on the Damascus road, he admits there in the book to the Galatians, for you have heard of my former life of Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. With raging fury, Saul was ravaging the church, imprisoning men and women, persecuting them, punishing them, beating them, casting his vote to put them to death, and approving of their executions. Make no mistake, Saul was deadly serious, and this was deadly serious business. It was a determined effort to put an early end to the church, and Saul was a key leader of that effort, He was trying with every fiber of his being to destroy the church of Christ in its very infancy. Another thing that marks the importance of Saul's conversion is the fact that its proclamation of the gospel was then to the ends of the earth through Paul. Remember, the Lord Jesus, Christ's earthly ministry, had been primarily directed to the nation Israel. Jesus said in Matthew 15, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The Apostle Paul expanded on our Lord's statement in the epistle to the Romans in the 15th chapter. In discussing the ministry of Christ, he says, For I tell you 
that Christ became a servant of the uncircumcised, that is, to the Jews, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. The first purpose of the coming of our Lord was to confirm the promise made unto the fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to give them many descendants and land. And of course, also, because the promises to the fathers included Gentiles. For the most important promise of God to Abraham was that all nations of the earth would be blessed through him. That is, through his descendant, through the descendant, that seed of Abraham that we know today as Jesus Christ. And now Paul will soon become become the leading figure in the spread of the gospel among the Gentiles. In fact, taking up his commission to preach the gospel and bear the name of the Lord before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, he even calls himself a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. God has been preparing Saul for this mission. He is Saul of Tarsus, an educated and trained Jew from a Gentile city, from the region we know today as southern Turkey. He speaks the language of the Gentiles. He speaks Greek. He is comfortable and confident among them. The ministry of the Lord through Paul touches Gentiles, including us, who are saved by the same gospel preached to our ancestors thousands of years before. As Luke will portray through the last half of Acts, and as God will confirm through Paul's letters inspired by God as Scripture, Paul will be the point of the spear in taking the gospel of Christ, in moving the gospel from the hostile confines of Jerusalem and the land of the Jews into the whole hostile culture of Western Asia and Southern Europe, deep into the heart of the Roman Empire, even to its very capital in Rome itself. Now, having looked at the big picture surrounding Paul's conversion, let's note a few important details. First, is there anyone in Jerusalem and the land of Israel less likely to convert to Christianity? Christianity is Saul's enemy. Saul is breathing threats and murder against these Christians. He is heading up a journey from Jerusalem to Damascus, about a 150-mile walk a trip of five or six days by foot to go and arrest Jews who have become Christians and ran away from the persecution in Jerusalem. We know at this time there's a sizable community of Jews in Damascus, probably several thousand. These persecuted Christians likely had relatives and friends in Damascus and Saul had gone to the trouble of getting official approval of his mission from the high priest and the Jewish council. Notice too, that Saul refers to them as the way. They are not known as a way, but the way. That very emphatically refers to the fact that they believe Jesus is the only way of salvation. In John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And his followers had adopted that name for their movement, for Christianity. When Saul had almost completed his journey to Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. In Acts 22, we are told it is around noontime. 
in Acts 26, Paul tells us the light was brighter than the sun. This is not a purely natural event. For the appearing of bright light is a sign that God is present throughout the Scriptures. It reminds us most immediately of Jesus at the Mount of Transfiguration in, Mount, in Matthew 17 when, quote, His face shone like the sun and His clothes became as white as light. And Saul just, just doesn't see a divine light. He also hears a divine voice that calls his name twice. It is the resurrected and glorified Lord Jesus Christ. And he makes it clear that to persecute his church is to directly persecute him. The church is the body of Christ. And to cause pain to his people is to cause injury to Christ. That is the union of Christ with his people. We have been crucified with him. We are one with him. When we hurt, he hurts. Note two additional things. Saul is physically impacted by his encounter with Christ. This is not just a vision or a dream. Jesus is actually there. He sees the risen Christ. Saul is struck blind and falls to the ground. Keep in mind, Saul believes before this event that Jesus is dead. That he is not risen from the dead. But here he is, struck blind, overwhelmed, and overcome by Jesus. The one before whom every knee will bow and every tongue confess. In one sense, this is Christ's judgment on Saul's mission of destruction of the church. It is cast down to the ground and silenced by the voice of God, just like Saul is. Also notice the impact on Saul's will. Saul obeys immediately. Now he needs some help to get to Damascus. For Christ has made him powerless and helpless, so Saul must be led by the hand. He is clearly humbled before God in a transformed way because he doesn't eat or drink for three days, which suggests that Saul has decided to fast a likely indication of his repentance. While Saul's eyes are blind and his stomach is empty, his heart is being opened and filled with the truth regarding his own spiritual condition before God. And who is this Jesus Christ, this Messiah, this Savior? Paul's view of himself and his religion undergoes a complete reversal. He described that change in Philippians chapter 3. Paul said, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surprising worth, or the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Paul had been a Pharisee of Pharisee, a Hebrew with a distinguished ancestry. He had done many, many works of the law. But he says, I counted them all as loss. I counted them all as garbage in order to know Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is now Saul's focus. No longer his Jewish traditions. No longer his desire to kill Christians. Saul's will is changed. 
Look down at verse 10 of Acts chapter 9. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him, so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. Now in Damascus, we come to a disciple of Christ called Ananias. Jesus appears to him. Chapter 22 of Acts tells us Ananias is a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews. He's a man of good reputation. Jesus tells Ananias where Saul is and what he is doing. He's praying. Another indication of Saul's humility before God. And while Ananias doesn't refuse to go, he clearly has some significant reservations, some second thoughts about going and talking to this Saul. He's heard about Saul. He knows how dangerous he is. And Ananias isn't quite so sure about this plan. You can understand, can't you? Go fetch the guy that's been hauling Christians to prison and killing them. Not exactly the kind of invitation that we're drawn to, is it? But you've got to give Ananias some credit. The Lord responds firmly but graciously to Ananias' protests. He gives Ananias a reason why he must go. It is because Saul is the Lord's chosen instrument. He has been chosen by God for this mission. Saul will take the message of the gospel to each of the three groups that Luke has talked about. He will take it to the Gentiles. He will take it to the children of Israel. He will take it to the ends of the earth. What is clearly evident is Jesus, in accordance with his sovereign purpose and plan, has specifically chosen Saul to carry the gospel. Verse 16 makes it clear this will be a tough ministry involving much suffering for Saul. Suffering that is clearly based upon what Jesus says. It will be in accordance with the will of God. And it will be in the name of Jesus Christ. So Ananias goes to Saul. 
And his first words to him in verse 17 are, Brother Saul. Ananias addresses him as a brother in Christ. Ananias has believed what the Lord Jesus told him. Can you imagine what Saul is thinking? These are the first words he hears from another believer. Brother Saul. Brother denotes the spiritual and family relationship that exists between fellow Christians and forms the basis for all future relationships between Saul and his brothers in Christ. Ananias tells Saul that Jesus has appeared to him and sent him to minister in two ways, that he would regain his sight and he would be filled with the Holy Spirit. The laying on of hands by Ananias signals the blessing upon Saul and seems to be the external sign of the restoration of Saul's physical sight, accompanied by being filled with the Spirit and given spiritual sight by Christ through the gospel. Exactly how the filling by the Spirit takes place in Saul, we can't be certain, but how it happened is less important than that it did. It empowered, Paul, it empowered Saul for ministry as a believer in Christ, a special ministry already spoken of and sovereignly and graciously given to him by Jesus. On the basis of his God-given faith in Christ, Saul is now baptized in water. Again, we see the pattern of coming to faith, believing in Jesus for salvation, followed closely by the profession of faith in water baptism. Saul's baptism, like the baptism we saw this morning of Brent, testified that he had truly believed and trusted in Christ. Saul was converted, forgiven, and now he was bound to Christ. He was one with Christ. He was in union with him in his death, burial, and his resurrection. And his baptism pictured that reality. Saul, now embracing Christ, begins to eat and grow strong and prepares for the service that Christ has for him. He begins in earnest in verse 19, the last half of verse 19. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem, of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? Now Ananias surely introduced Saul to the other believers in Damascus, and word about Saul's coming had spread to the Jews and their synagogues and to the believers in Damascus. They too knew his reputation, and they are shocked at his message and the dramatic change they've seen in him. They thought he had come to arrest Christians and take them to prison in Jerusalem. Instead, he has joined them and was even preaching the message of Christ, the very message that he had come to destroy. Verse 22, But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall 
lowering him in a basket. Jesus not only tells them, or rather Paul not only tells him that Jesus is the Son of God, back in verse 20, emphasizes Jesus' equality with God the Father, but also proclaims Jesus as the Christ. The word means Messiah, the Savior of Israel, the one the Old Testament promised would come as prophet, priest, and king. This also keeps before the people Jesus' exaltation as their representative and mediator. Even though Saul has been through an amazing conversion experience, he does not preach himself. His constant theme is who Jesus Christ is and what he has done. The response from his Jewish audience was familiar. They plotted to kill him. This will be a consistent pattern in Paul's ministry. He often will go to the synagogue in a town first. He will preach the gospel, only to find the people there will plot against him to kill him. In another sense, Paul becomes the victim of the very thing he himself has been doing to believers. He knows their murderous motives of these Jews. He knows their passion from the inside. A mortal danger that we'll see again and again in Paul's ministry and eventually ends, according to tradition, with Paul's death in Rome. Now, in what is the first of many narrow escapes during his life as a believer, Saul is delivered from death by God through the disciples who let him down the wall of the city in a basket. Somewhere in here, we're not really sure, probably around the beginning of verse 23, where the text says, many days had passed, Paul spends some time in Arabia. Not the Arabian Peninsula, but to the south and to the east of Damascus. We know this from Galatians chapter 1, starting in verse 15, where Paul writes, But when he, referring to God the Father, who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his Son to me, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem. It seems three years pass from Paul's conversion until he returns to Jerusalem. Those three years give Paul time for an initial preaching ministry in Damascus, to spend some time in Arabia, and then return again to Damascus for another period of ministry there. The question comes up, why Arabia? What, what did Paul do there? We don't really know. Luke doesn't mention it at all in Acts, and Paul gives few details in Galatians. Many have said he went there to be alone and spend time with God in much the same way other men of God, like Moses and like Jesus, went away alone. And while that might be part of the reason, considering the point of the passage in Galatians, which is that Paul was called to preach the Gentiles, and he did that before talking with the apostles, I think it's possible Paul spent some time in Arabia actually preaching the gospel to the people there. Regardless, Luke moves the story along and brings us to Saul's return to Jerusalem from Damascus, starting in verse 26. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him. 
for they did not believe that he was a disciple. Saul gets a pretty chilly reception from the disciples in Jerusalem. That's probably to be expected. Not only did his reputation for persecution of the church precede him, Saul had been involved in the arrest, beating, and death of their own brothers and sisters in Christ. Husbands, wives, and children had been separated as a result of Saul's direct actions. And now he's back in town. Their skepticism is understandable. But one of the disciples, Barnabas, supports him. Even without the supernatural appearance of the risen Lord that Ananias had, Barnabas comes to believe Saul is transformed and is a true believer. Barnabas is an active supporter of Saul and speaks on his behalf in verse 27. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he, that is Paul, had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. Evidently, the apostles and the church in Jerusalem are persuaded that Saul is a genuine Christian, that he's not a fraud, and their trust is vindicated and confirmed by his witness for Christ, recorded in verse 29. And he, that is Saul, spoke and disputed with the Hellenists, the Greek-speaking Jews. But they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. You can only imagine the intense anger Paul triggered in the Hellenistic Jews in Jerusalem. Paul had been one of them. Now he is seen as a traitor. A traitor of the worst kind. He was a person they trusted. They had put him in leadership over others. As a result, they wanted to kill him. Well, another escape for Paul is planned. Just as the believers in Damascus ferreted Saul out of the city, so also now the brothers will do the same in Jerusalem. They take him to the seaport of Caesarea, where Philip had settled at the end of chapter 8. And then he is taken away to Tarsus, a town on the southern coast of Turkey, Saul's hometown. Barnabas will find him there in Acts chapter 11, verse 25, and bring him to Antioch to minister him. Well, we now come to the summary statement in verse 31 that covers most of the past four chapters from Acts chapter 6, verse 8, when we met Stephen, to chapter 9, verse 31, after the conversion of Saul. Verse 31 of Acts 9. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It multiplied. The previous summary statement in Acts 6, verse 7 said this, And the word of God continued to increase. And the numbers of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Both of these statements have something in common. They both summarize the extraordinary growth of the church. In Acts chapter 6, verse 7, Luke summarizes the growth of the church in Jerusalem. While in Acts chapter 9, verse 31, Luke summarizes the growth of the church 
in the areas surrounding Jerusalem, in Judea and in Sumeria. The summary statement of chapter 9, verse 31, also paves the way for the next great step forward in the mission Christ gave the church. He said it in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, which was to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth, which means taking the gospel to the Gentiles, to the, to the non-Jewish people. That is the great mass of humanity. To all the peoples of the earth that do not have Jewish ancestry, that are not the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In verse 31, Luke depicts the growth of the church in two ways. First, it's spiritual growth. As Luke says, it had peace. Luke does not mean it no longer has trials or difficulties, although the conversion of Saul certainly gave him a break from his ferocious attacks for at least a time. Rather, Luke means the peace of God in Christ that every believer enjoys regardless of outward circumstances. It is the peace of God that comes from knowing there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus, and the result of knowing that peace is that the church was being built up It was maturing, and in doing so, was walking or living in the fear of the Lord, referring to a right regard, an awe-inspired reverence and regard for the majesty and authority of Jesus Christ, while understanding the church's own position in humility and submission before Him. This maturity also is felt by those in the church as a result of this peace in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. This is the guidance and consolation of the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers. The Holy Spirit indwells us as believers and gives us comfort in times of trouble. While all this was happening and the spreading and the maturing of churches, we are told at the end of verse 31 that the church multiplied. The number of new disciples in Christ are coming. They are trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. And they are entering the ranks of Christ's church. The church is growing. It is maturing. It is under the providential and guiding hand of God. The blessings of the Lord Jesus and the Spirit are allowing it to triumph in the midst of the storm. A few points of application this morning from this passage. While Saul's conversion was certainly unique, There are common things that characterize Saul's conversion that generally are true of anyone coming to faith in Christ. First, before conversion, unbelievers like Saul are committed to their present selfish and sinful ways of life. There is nothing evident in Saul's life that would cause God to pour out His grace upon him. He neither merits nor qualifies for the mercy that Christ extends to him. Saul had used his great intellect and his energy to sin and rebel against God, to oppose his church. As unbelievers and unconverted people, we are all like Saul. We are rebels against God, pursuing our own ways, our own agendas. Second, we see the all-powerful God pouring out his grace as he wills. Jesus literally stops Saul in his tracks. Saul is blind, overwhelmed, having been knocked to the ground by the power of Christ's presence. He was powerless to resist the direction and care of the Savior. Saul's newfound willingness to submit and follow Jesus 
is a sovereign gift and work of the Son of God in his heart. Jesus is sovereignly in control over the time, place, manner, and outcome of Saul's conversion. Jesus works sovereignly in us to bring us to faith in exactly the same ways. Third, we do not really see how radical the grace of Jesus Christ is, do we? Saul was arresting and murdering Christians, working to destroy the church. Yet the saving mercy of Jesus reached down and saved Saul. The power of the cross could save even Saul, this murderous individual who was pursuing the church to destroy it. And notice, Christ did not just improve him or reform him. Jesus did not just make him a better man, but made him a new man by transforming him by the power of the Spirit of God. Saul underwent a metamorphosis from death to life, from darkness to light. This wasn't a cure for the disease of sin, rather as a resurrection from spiritual death. Saul was spiritually like a cold, dead body at the bottom of the sea, and Christ breathed new life into him. This is the same change that happens to us when we believe in Christ. Do we really appreciate how radical the grace of Christ is? How powerful and life-altering his sacrifice for us is? I think the true reality of it is beyond our full understanding, this side of glory. Lastly, and another reason from Saul that every follower of Christ must be prepared to suffer for Jesus' Christ, for Jesus' sake. Saul's former friends turned on him because of his commitment to the gospel. The Lord warns us that even our family members may reject and persecute us because we are Christians. It's important for us to remember that Jesus has a purpose in appointing suffering for his people. He causes all things to work for good to those who love God. And he promised to never leave us or forsake us no matter what. He promised that he has us by the hand and he will not let us go in the midst of persecution. There is the peace of God in Christ in that. There is the peace of God in Christ in the gospel, which is the power of God for salvation to all who believe even for a murdering and destroying enemy of the cross, like Saul of Tarsus. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are so grateful to you for the Word of God and for the marvelous way in which you dealt with Saul. How you made him an apostle of Jesus Christ from being a persecutor of your church. And we thank you for the magnificent understanding of the grace of God that you gave to him. And we pray that we too will have a deeper appreciation, a deeper understanding of your grace, even as we consider the way you saved your servant Saul. Now may the God of peace, who raised from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, Equip us with every good thing that we may do your will and that you would work in us that which is pleasing in your sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever 
and ever. Amen.